Good morning, Salt City. My name is Jordan. Um, excited to be with you guys. Uh, the way that I would summarize what we've been talking about in Matthew recently is Matthew 4:17, which says, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And so, what we primarily focused on last week was that repentance piece. And what I want to focus on this week is the kingdom of heaven. Because we pray that, and, and it's the name of our series, we say, your kingdom come. But when we're asking that, I don't know if we really know what we're asking, because that's not really a, a Western idea of thinking about the gospel. Typically, we think more individualistically about the benefits that we receive from knowing God. But this idea of the kingdom is all over scripture, and it's the idea of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ coming to be the dominant operating principle in the world. And it's really good news. And so I want to talk about two aspects of the kingdom. First and primarily the king. Because the kingdom is based on who the king is. And then we'll talk about what it looks like when the kingdom starts to come. And so first the king, Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. All right, so Jesus is being led by the Spirit. So we've got some cool Trinitarian stuff happening here where Jesus is following the lead of the Spirit. But here's what I want you to know is that is not uh, just a uniquely God thing. Jesus is actually operating within his humanity in this moment. And so this idea of being led by the Spirit is not just for God, but it's for us as human beings. Have you actually pursued the opportunity to be led by the Spirit in your day-to-day decisions of life. So Drew the other day was telling me about this family that he knew growing up where the wife uh, in this husband and wife combo was so consistently talking to God that the husband didn't know if she was talking to him or to God. She would talk out loud to Jesus throughout the day. And in fact, she'd talk about him to Jesus. So she'd stand behind him and say stuff like, God, do you, uh, do you think that John should be watching football right now or should he be doing something else, which was maybe a little passive aggressive? And, and he didn't love it at first, but he eventually embraced this mentality. And so these two people spent their lives in constant communication with God about the daily decisions of their life. Have you ever dreamed about intimacy with God like that? Yeah, a lot of us don't have that. But the first step towards having that is thinking that it's even a possibility. Are you dreaming about being led by the Spirit the way that Jesus was. Another observation that we got hit right away before we can move on. And guys, follow along with me in the Bible, if you would. So look at Matthew 4, because I'm essentially just going to make some observations that I see in the text. I want you guys looking at it with me. The other one I want you to see is it says that uh, the Spirit led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That seems like an odd thing for the Spirit to do. What's that about? That word tempted can also mean tested. And so you can have the same thing happening here that that Satan has a desire in his mind and it's to tempt Jesus into doing something that will harm him. But the spirit can use that exact same event to test Jesus in order to produce glory at Jesus being able to pass the test. And that same reality can happen in your life. You can have one situation in your life where Satan is trying to tempt you to do something that'll kill you, but the spirit is trying to test you in order to produce glory and dependence in your life. And so the Spirit is leading Jesus out into the wilderness, verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Understatement of the century. He, he didn't eat for 40 days. 
So Jesus was on the verge of starvation. His body was starting to eat itself and he was incredibly physically weak, tired, and alone. And this is when Satan comes to him, verse three, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I wanna zoom out for a second here and take a look at what's happening in this moment. So remember what just happened in the Gospel of Matthew, is Jesus was just baptized and declared by a voice from heaven as being the Son of God. And then the Spirit came down like a dove on him publicly. So Jesus would be fairly famous at this moment. He would have a lot of public and political persuasion in this moment if he would want to, and here's what he does, immediately leaves and goes out into the desert by himself. This would be like if you got elected president of the United States and your first 40 days in office, some of the most important days to prove kind of your promises that you had made, if you just bailed and nobody could find you. It's stuff like this that Jesus does that, that is so off-putting to a lot of the people in his life and can be off-putting to us because he refuses to play into our expectations for him. And here was the expectation of the people for the Messiah that Jesus was just declared to be. They expected him to bring a socio-political movement that would overthrow Rome and put him in charge. But here's what Jesus is demonstrating as he leaves and goes out into the wilderness is that is not the type of movement that he's going to engage in. Jesus did not come to bring a socio-political overhaul because the problem is way too big for that and Jesus is way too big for that. Here's what I mean by that. Okay, first the problem is way too big for that. You can't fundamentally change human hearts and change our world through a political movement. Because any utopian idea of this ideal that we're all striving for, if we could all just get on board with some ideal in the world and live like it, inevitably puts human beings up as the hope of the world. And human beings are not the hope of the world, they're the problem with the world. And so the problem is way too big for a political movement to be able to handle, and not only that, but Jesus is way too big. And here's what I mean by that, is when you're starting this sociological or political movement, here's what you need, is you need to vie for people's endorsement of you. You need to do things that people approve of, and you need to get other people on board with your movement so that that movement can maintain momentum, but Jesus does not need the approval of anyone. He does not need your approval. He doesn't need my approval. He doesn't need the world's approval. He does not need anyone's approval or help in order to be the good king. He just is that. And he declares himself the good king over the universe, regardless of what people think of him. He's too big to limit himself to that type of movement. Now, they were also expecting him to bring a conquering movement. And Jesus actually does come to conquer, but in a vastly different way than they expected. So here's what Jesus is doing as he goes out in the desert, is Jesus is going to war. But it's a very different type of war than what they expected. He's not trying to conquer Rome. He's trying to conquer the spiritual forces that have been darkening the world. Rome was the puppet, Satan is the puppeteer, and Jesus wants to go after the puppeteer. And so Jesus goes out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan for the souls of humanity. 
and it's a representative battle. Here's what I mean by that. Think about like David and Goliath is David goes out on behalf of the Israelites to fight Goliath, who's there on behalf of the Philistines, and whoever wins that nation then in turn wins. And Jesus here is fighting on behalf of humanity, and Satan is fighting for all of the spiritual forces that hate humanity. And it is utterly fascinating how Jesus shows up for this battle. So we get a picture in Revelation of how Jesus will show up for battle at the end of all things when he finally and forever defeats Satan. As he shows up on a heavenly white horse with an angelic army at his back and just a sick tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how Jesus shows up for battle at the end of all things. Here's how Jesus shows up for battle here is a hungry, lonely, tired human being. Can you imagine how frail the human body would feel if you're God? Jesus shows up for the fight weak. Why? What's Jesus doing? So there's this uh, philosophy in poker called the check race, which is where you essentially fake that you have a weak hand when you really have a strong hand. And what you're trying to do is produce overconfidence in your opponent. So they'll just keep betting, betting, betting. And then at the end of it, you just bet up against them and flip your hand and you won. And it's so stinking satisfying. Uh, That's what Jesus is doing here. He's check raising Satan. He is baiting Satan into thinking that he's weaker than he really is so that Satan thinks that he has won and he keeps coming at Jesus, but Jesus has got an ace up his sleeve. He's got a card still to play. Let's look at this, verse three. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan here is doing the same thing that he did to Adam and Eve. It, it's, it's both revolving around food and this temptation to take food that God had not approved. And here's what happened with Adam and Eve. Is Satan told Adam, hey, Adam, God doesn't really love you. He's holding out on you. The reason he told you not to eat from that apple is because he doesn't want you to have everything that he has. He doesn't want you to have everything that's good. And so it's nice that you trust him, but really, if you want what's good in life, you got to fend for yourself. And so just go take that for yourself. Here's what Satan is doing to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, this plan that God the Father has for you it's crazy. This, this idea of becoming a human being and getting weak and not using all of your divine power at every moment to do whatever you want, the life of suffering and potential death that God is leading you towards, he doesn't want your good. He doesn't want what's good for you. So just, just take some things into your own, own hand. You've got power, just use it. Make yourself some bread. You're hungry, forget this fasting thing that God sent you on, just provide for yourself. But what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's what Jesus is doing, is he's rejecting a self-sufficient life for a God-dependent one. He's turning away the opportunity to rely on his own strength for the opportunity and joy on leaning on the strength of the Father. To follow Jesus, you gotta do the same thing. And here's what's true of you, what's true of all of us, is we've spent our whole life working to become self-sufficient, which is a really good thing. That's, that's part of maturity, is you gotta grow up and figure out how to live life on your own. 
A baby in a diaper is cute. A 16-year-old in a diaper is not so cute. So at some point, your parents potty trained you so that you could be self-sufficient. All of us are, are working towards, you know, financial independence. And, and at some point, we separate from our parents in order to stand on our own two feet. And, and there's a correlation between self-sufficiency and maturity. The more self-sufficient you are, the more mature you are in this life. But here's what I want to show you is in walking with God in the life of the Spirit, there's a correlation between self-sufficiency and maturity, but it's exactly the opposite. The more self-sufficient you think you are, the more immature you actually are in Christ. But the more that you're willing to admit your need, the more you're willing to let let go of your own control and own self-sufficiency, the more you can put on maturity in Christ. What area of your life are you fighting for control? What's that unforgiveness, that anxiety, that relationship that you're just white knuckle gripping? That it's like you can give a lot of things to God, but he can't go there in your life. Because if you were to give that up and let God do whatever he wants with that, you're too afraid of what would happen. And so you're holding on to that control. You're taking that issue into your own hands. Look, if Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, can give up control to trust his father, so can you. All right, so next temptation. Satan's trying to get Jesus to prove that he's the son of God by essentially jumping off of a building so that God has to save him. All right, it's the equivalent of like on a playground. If somebody says, I can throw a football this far. Some kid inevitably yells, oh yeah, I don't think you can prove it. And this is what Satan is saying to Jesus is you're the son of God and you think God cares about you, prove it. And what Jesus says back to him is verse seven. Again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God has already proven his power and his goodness. He spoke the universe into existence. He said a word and stars came out of his mouth. And he's been upholding the universe by the word of his power and bringing goodness to his people ever since. God doesn't have anything in his character to prove. But when we get afraid, when we start to doubt, when we walk through moments that are difficult or different from what we expected, when Jesus isn't the savior that we expected or thought was coming, we tend to ask God to prove it. Because in our doubts, we go, God, I know that you in theory love me, but I don't feel it right now. And so I need you to show me. I need you to prove it to me. God, I'm struggling to believe in you. Do you even exist? Can you, can you make me feel something or can you show me something? God, prove yourself. I need you to show yourself to me. Because we don't get to lay stipulations on God. He gets to lay stipulations on us. God doesn't have to prove his character. He's not on trial for his character. We're on trial for ours. And so don't try to flip that and make God prove himself to you. His word, his creation, the fact that you're breathing is enough. Trust him the way that Jesus did. Then the last temptation towards Jesus, verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God 
and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Okay, this one seems like a really odd temptation. Satan is essentially offering Jesus to become the ruler of everything on earth if Jesus will just bow down and worship Satan. And he's saying, Jesus, you won't have to submit to anyone if you'll just submit to me. But it's an odd temptation because Jesus knows God the Father. And Jesus already has access to everything in creation because he made creation. And so is Satan just off base on this one? No, Satan's really crafty. And so what is Satan offering Jesus? Satan is offering Jesus a way to become king of earth without having to walk through the hardship of the cross. He's offering Jesus a way to rule without walking through pain, to have glory without the suffering. He's offering Jesus a workaround of God's plan to take the plan into his own hands. This is how a commentator that I was reading said this, the temptation is to bypass the cross, to short circuit the path of obedience and to adopt the role of the son and the king without stooping to the role of the suffering servant. And there's a reason why Satan thought that Jesus would take that bait It's because it had always worked in the past when Satan had fought with a representative of humanity who was also supposed to be representing God. This isn't the first time that Satan has gone to battle with a representative of God. The first one was with Adam. Here's what God said to Adam. He said, I made you in my image and I want you to rule in my name. I want you to inherit the earth and demonstrate my glory to the world. And here's what Adam did, is by sinning, he denied God's image and took on the image of Satan and he destroyed the earth, Satan won. Then there were the Israelites, the the people of God, the people who were supposed to live the way that Adam was initially commissioned to live and God said to the Israelites, I wanna be your God and I want you to be my people. I want relationship with you. I want to love you and produce this covenant with you. And here's what the Israelites did is they got mad at God and asked if they could replace him with a king of their own. They rejected him as their king. And then the Israelites raised up a king and then God pursued those kings and said, if you'll rule in my name, I'll be good to the people. But those kings rejected God as well and ruled, attempted to rule in their own power. And so Satan has this history running through his mind of how he's won over and over and over again of a representative of God and humanity and he thinks he'll win again here. But here's what Satan didn't know is that Jesus is different because Jesus is the true and better Adam. There's a reason why he gets weak into human skin is because he's representing humanity. And Jesus was the obedient human son that Adam was not. And Jesus was the true and better Israelite. That's why he spent 40 days in the wilderness is because he was representing the 40 year wandering of the Israelites in the desert. Every time that Satan quotes scripture, or excuse me, that Jesus quotes scripture back to Satan, he's quoting Deuteronomy. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8, which I want to read to you this section from Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what's in your heart 
whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God lets the Israelite people wander around in the wilderness because he wants to test them. He wants to find out if they will humbly place their trust in God or whether they'll doubt him and do their own thing. And they badly failed that test. But Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he takes the test of obedience in their place. You know how you get an A plus on a test that's really over your head? You have the person who wrote the test take it for you. And so Jesus takes the test for the Israelites and he passes in their place. And not only is he the true and better Adam, not only is he the true and better Israelite, not only is he the better, the true and better king, he's the true and better you. Here's what God said to you. I want relationship with you. I want to pursue a restoration. I want friendship with you. I want to know you. And here's what we do is we say, God, I deserve better than that. Do you know that's what your sin is? Is it's God offering you everything good and the beautiful, joy-filled life of obedience and you looking at that gift from God and saying, God, I don't want that. I want something, quote unquote, better. And so I'm gonna go do my own thing. I'm gonna make my way. But here's what God said to Jesus. Is Jesus, I want you to die in their place so that I can give them everything that you have. And here's what Jesus said. Yes, I'll do anything for you, Father. And Jesus walks to a cross, embracing the mission of God. And Satan was laughing because he thought that he was winning. He thought that this was just another example of a time that he had beat a king in the place of God. But actually what had happened is Satan was just taking the divine bait. Satan learns that not only can he not win an argument with Jesus in the wilderness, but he can't really kill him at Calvary. Because the attempted murder of the son of God was actually just the coronation of Jesus and the dethronement of Satan. Satan played into his own undoing as Jesus is coronated king of the universe. I've been reading up on Chernobyl, the disaster at Chernobyl in the 80s. I think most of you know about that disaster. If you don't, it was a nuclear power plant that partially exploded and obviously radiation went out everywhere and they had to evacuate the area surrounding it. And even though this disaster happened in the 80s, I found out that experts are predicting that human beings will not be able to live there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so even though this accident happened a long time ago, if you were to go there now, that radiation would still affect you and probably kill you. A long time ago, at the beginning of humanity, there was a disaster. Adam believed the lie and he sided with Satan instead of with God. And the result of that disaster is there was an explosion of radioactive death that encompassed all of God's good creation. And there was no escape. There wasn't any place to evacuate to because all of creation died, including us. And so what's been true of every single human being is that we have succumbed to the fog of death. Every single human being who has lived has died because they've been affected by that radiation from that disaster a long time ago. But here's what Jesus did a little over 2,000 years ago is he entered the fog 
of the radiation and he was immune to it. He couldn't be affected by it. And when he went to a cross, Satan thought that he was just another person succumbing to death. But what he didn't know is he thought that he was building a coffin for Jesus, but Jesus threw Satan in the coffin that he had built. And Jesus on that Sunday morning produced another explosion, but it was a different type of explosion. It was an explosion of love and joy that started to spread out through Jerusalem and has been spreading out through the entire earth ever since so that if you come to Christ, you can encounter his radioactive life that will push back death. Before the only thing that you could do as a human being was die, now if you encounter Christ, the only thing you can do is live because his life has infected you and taken over your body and now life and joy are your consistent reality. And it's coming over the world and it's pushing back the curse and the death that Satan inflicted on this place. And one day it will entirely take over the earth and all those who have trusted in Jesus will live on this earth forever with Jesus Christ on a completely restored creation. His joy will cover the earth. So what does his kingdom look like when it comes? That's the king what does the kingdom look like? Well, what was the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus was preaching? It said he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but that gospel couldn't be the way that we typically formulate the gospel. So when we think about gospel, we think Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead, so now we can be in heaven with God forever, which is the true gospel, but that hadn't happened yet. So that couldn't be the message that Jesus was preaching. So what was it? Here's what Jesus was telling them is there was a new way of life under this new good king, that a new rule and reign was coming, that life was pushing back death and the old, the oppressive world of the old ruler was crumbling and the new world was being made. And so what is that kingdom like? There's a description of it in verse 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan." Do you see that spreading movement of the kingdom? This, this healing influence to all people everywhere? That's what the kingdom is like. So first, the kingdom brings healing. Jesus gives us a foretaste of what he'll do when he comes back to rule the earth. Is that he'll bring spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical healing to all people who trust him. Jesus when he lived, was like this hot spot of heaven walking around earth and anyone who got close to him could connect to heaven. If you got close enough, you could experience the power of heaven, but notice that the power of the kingdom was localized in Jesus. Here's what I mean, is that when he started to bring the kingdom, it's not like everyone on the earth was just suddenly healed and that all sin went away. It was localized on Jesus, so those that got close to him could experience the power of the kingdom. That is still true today. 
The kingdom of God has not fully come yet, but there is this locus of power on the person of Jesus Christ. So if you get to know the person of Jesus Christ, some of his heaven will rub off on you. And here's what we believe as a church is this kingdom that was described by Jesus is still going out into the world, that we're still getting this little foretaste of heaven in the world and that Jesus still really can heal people spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. And so we wanna pray for that healing to take place. Now, sometimes he chooses to heal people physically, sometimes he doesn't, and we're not in control of that, and we don't try to control that. But we do wanna ask him for the type of healing in our lives that would be good. And so tonight at our service, we actually will give people the opportunity to come receive healing prayer. And so we'll invite people who are sick or physically hurting in some way, or people who are struggling with their mental health, who are fighting against anxiety and depression, or, or people with any other issues that aren't a part of Jesus's good kingdom to come receive prayer from some of the leaders in our church. Now, obviously we can't do that on this live stream, but I still wanna offer you the opportunity. And so we'll put a phone number on the screen and you can actually text in your prayer request to that number. And our leaders throughout the coming week will be praying for healing for you. Now, if you feel comfortable, we would love it if you would drop your name in that text as well so that we can pray for you by name. But even if you wanna do it anonymously, that's great. We would love to pray for you. Give us that chance to pray the kingdom into your life. His kingdom is still advancing now. Jesus is still healing people now. Now, it's not only healing that he brings, but he brings healing for everyone. This kingdom came to Gentiles who are the religiously and racially discriminated against people. It comes to the Jews who are the proud religious people. It comes to people with diseases who are the outcasts of society. It comes to people with demons who seemed way too far gone in order for people to reach them. Anybody can come into the kingdom of Jesus because it's that powerful, it's that big, it's, all it's that all-consuming, it's that all-transforming, and that's true for you. Is If you are listening to this, if you are hearing my words right now, you can come in. You can be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. There's no one who has to be excluded. If you want in on the kingdom, no matter your background, no matter your race, no matter your sins, no matter your struggles, no matter your failures, you can come in and be a part of this kingdom. And it's not just everyone, it's everywhere. Verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The kingdom starts to spread throughout the entire earth. The kingdom is this recreation of the entire world and it will touch all corners of the globe and worshipers of Jesus will be reached everywhere. That just will happen. You can't stop it. You, can, can, you can't contain it. God's kingdom is moving. He wins. The kingdom is healing that goes everywhere for anyone who wants it. Now we gotta quickly just address the obvious tension it's that when we look out around the world, it doesn't always feel like that. And maybe even sometimes it rarely feels like that. And the reason for that is, is we live in what's called the already not yet tension of the kingdom. That there's pieces of Jesus' kingdom that will come that haven't yet. And there's pieces of his kingdom that have already come. So I was talking to Isaac the other day and they're in the process of moving and he was talking about how they've hit that just horrible wall when you're moving that I think you guys are maybe familiar with, 
where you're far or you're getting close enough to the move-in date that you've packed up some of your stuff, but you can't pack up like the daily stuff. And so you're not really living anywhere. You're just kind of there. You're not really at home in your current place and you're not really at home in your new house. That's what it's like to live as a Christian is we are no longer at home in this world. We know that heaven is coming. And so we've started to pack up some of our stuff, but we're not quite there yet. And so we don't feel at home here and we don't feel at home there yet. But here's what Isaac and Abby aren't doing is they're not like, well, this is hard. So we're just bailing. It's just, it's just too much to pack up. It's not worth it to go home. No, the new house is clearly going to be worth it. And so you get through the current painful moment with the hope of being home someday. Also, what they're not doing is just concluding that their house doesn't exist because they're not there yet. But there can be that temptation in this life is because this place isn't heaven. People conclude that heaven doesn't exist. No, you're just not there yet. You are not home yet. And so this is what I want to encourage you guys to do is just believe. We get these little outbreaks of the kingdom and right now it might feel like that never happens, but think back on when God has done amazing things in your life, when you've experienced him, when you felt moments of closeness to him, when he's offered you forgiveness for your sins, when you felt joy in his presence, those things are true and real and they're pointing you home. And don't give up. Just stubbornly refuse to give up on the faith that the kingdom of Jesus is coming and that he will win. When Jesus was fighting with Satan, it did not look like Jesus was winning. It looked like he was losing, but at the end, he played that ace and the kingdom came. And the same thing can be true of you. It won't always look like you're winning, but if you hold on to him, he will come through for you and you can experience the kingdom of God. And the spirit of God sent Jesus into the wilderness. And if you're in the wilderness right now, if you feel bombarded by Satan, if you feel alone, exhausted, and tired, the Spirit of God sent you there. His hand is all over your life. Reevaluate your doubts and see his goodness behind everything that's happening and trust him. Be like Jesus. Embrace the road of weakness of pain, of sometimes seemingly failing and trust that God the Father through it is preparing you for glory. Hold on to your hope. Keep going. Let's pray. God, just give us hope. Help us not to bail. Help us not to conclude that you're not present or that you don't care about us just because we don't fully see the the picture of your kingdom yet. Let us believe and trust that you're doing something in the world and that you will ultimately win. God, I push back on the lies of Satan. Whatever those are in people's lives as they're listening to this, if they, if they feel alone, if they're doubting, if they feel afraid, if they feel proud, if they feel like sin is a good life, any of those lies of Satan, help them to see that your words are better and that you're worth following Holy Spirit. Help, help us as a church to pursue relationship with you, Spirit, where you're talking to us every day and we're saying yes to whatever you're telling us. Help us to dream 
about that type of dependence, that type of intimacy, that type of trust that Jesus had in you. Help us to dream of having a life like that. And God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please help us to live out your kingdom here and give the world a little taste of your presence here, of your joy, of your love. But beyond that, bring your kingdom fully back, Jesus. Come back and get us. We want to live at home with you finally and forever. Help us to hold on to the hope until you do. We love you. Amen.